Welcome back. Here's a reminder that you're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. You can listen to podcasts of this and many other IRIS programs at iowaradioreading.org. Support for today's readings comes from the Des Moines Register, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and bensoundmusic.com. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. And now to pick up the last one of the Dear Abby. Dear Abby, my partner and I have miscarried five times over the past four years. We are heartbroken, defeated, overwhelmed, and exhausted. We are struggling emotionally, physically, and financially because of this journey. We do not feel any real emotional support from our families. They have been sympathetic, but after the initial, quote, I'm sorry, I'm here if you need me, we're thinking about you, that's it. They expect us to attend all holidays, family gatherings, trips, etc., and we aren't always feeling up to it. I am angry with them for not understanding what we're going through. I have started distancing myself and skipping these family functions. Is this wrong of me? Signed, Bowing Out in North Dakota. Dear Bowing Out, No, under the circumstances, skipping a family gathering in which you would be forced to socialize isn't a bad idea. If this causes hurt feelings, remind the host that grief has no set timetable and you will celebrate with them again when you are up to it. Period. And back to sports now. Jokic wins NBA MVP for the third time. Denver Nuggets center Nikola Jokic's amazing and unique story continues. From the number 41 pick in the second round of the 2014 NBA draft to one of the best basketball players in the world, the six foot eleven Serbian won his third regular season MVP award in four years, beating out Oklahoma City's Shai Gilgius Alexander and Dallas Luke Donkic. Jokey joins an elite group of NBA players with three or more MVP awards: Kareem Abdul-Jabbar six, Bill Russell five. Michael Jordan, 5, Wilt Chamberlain, 4, LeBron James, 4, Moses Malone, 3, Larry Bird, 3, and Magic Johnson, 3. It is the sixth consecutive season that a player born outside of the United States has been the MVP. A compelling argument could be made for why each finalist, which also included Giglius Alexander and Donick should have won the award. Jokic got the whole the nod from voting panel, earning 79 first place votes and 926 points. Gilgius Alexander finished second with 15 first place votes and 64 points. Donick. Third, with four first-place votes, 566 points. Milwaukee's Giannis Antetokounmpo was the only other player to receive a first-place vote. 
Jokic averaged 26.4 points, 12.4 rebounds, 9.0 assists, 1.4 steals, and almost one block per game, and shot 58.3% from the field. 35.9% on three-pointers, and 81.7% on free throws, and was number two in the triple doubles with 25. The Nuggets finished 57-25, tied for the second best record in the league, and they earned the number two seed in the Western Conference. He became just one of four players to have multiple seasons with 20-plus triple doubles. During a stretch earlier in the season, Jokic became the first player in NBA history to record at least 14 rebounds and at least 14 assists in three consecutive games, and just the second player since steals became an official stat 50 years ago to have at least 30 points, 15 rebounds, 15 assists, and four steals in a game. He had a career-high 708 assists, passing Wilt Chamberlain for the most assists by a center in one season, and led the league in per-player efficiency rating, which measured a player's contributions. This third MVP solidifies Jokic's spot as one of the most gifted and skilled big men in NBA history. He has the ability to score inside and outside pass and rebound. He combines extraordinary footwork, a soft touch, and an incredible vision into an offensive force that is difficult to defend, creating scoring opportunities for himself and teammates. Donkic led the league in scoring with a career-high 33.9 points per game and a triple-double threat every game at 9.8 assists and 9.2 rebounds per game, and a career-high 38.2% on three-pointers. And in Major League Baseball news, keeping pace on numbers game, early eye-opening hitting, winning, and losing feats worth tracking until October. It's almost hard to believe, but on Wednesday, the Padres passed the 40-game mark, putting roughly a quarter of their regular season in the books. Almost every MLB team will cross that threshold this weekend. With that in mind, it's certainly not too early to, to dope out what's real, what's fake, and what's sustainable among the wild and wonderful early paces. Check back in October to see if these spring sprints turned into autumn actuality, Stats and records through Wednesday. Shohei Otani, 46 homers, 108 extra base hits. Hey, where else to start this exercise? Otani has astounded his Dodgers teammates, who saw plenty of his act when he was down the road in Anaheim, yet did not fully grasp his capabilities, even as a one-way player, until he was decapitating baseballs from every square of the strike zone. Even after going homerless in his first eight games as a Dodger, Otani remains on pace to equal his career high of 46 homers set in his first American League MVP season of 2021. That mark is in jeopardy. The weather will only get warmer. Otani's comfort level with his new team will grow, and he'll be further removed 
from the most distracting moments of a gambling fraud scandal per perpetrated by his former interpreter, which disrupted the start of start of his season. But the extra base total is astounding. Babe Ruth holds the record with 119 in 1921 when he played 152 games. There have been 13 seasons of 100 extra base hits, and eight of those came in 1937 or earlier. The only five since 1948 came in the heart of the offense-fueled steroid era. Otani's pace would put him third all-time behind Ruth and Lou Gehrig and break Barry Bonds' National League record of 107 set in his 73-homer season of 2001. Come October, a 50-100 to 100 season HR's extra base hits is within reach. 100 win teams. Sound almost impossible? Sure. In fact, it challenges mathematics possibilities possibility that six teams could win 100 games in a season. But there's no projecting the arc of a season, and right now, 2024 looks like a pair of sizable clumps at the top and bottom and a thick middle. As recently as 2022 and 2019, four teams won at least 100 games, and last year, three teams won 100 and another 99. The scary thing about most of this year's sextet tracking towards the Hundo is almost all of their foundations are deep and dominant started pitch, starting pitching. Take the Phillies, an uncharacteristically blazing start gives them a majors best 26 and 12 record. They merely need to play 598 ball to hit 100 wins. And with a starting rotation so good that Spencer Turnbull and his 1.57 ERA got relegated to the bullpen. It's extremely challenging to win a series from these guys. Tyler Glasnow and Yushinobu Yamamoto are exceeding the Dodgers' expectations, and soon they'll add Clayton Kershaw's return on the heels of Walker Bueller's debut. Orioles starters just tossed 22 consecutive scoreless innings and now roll six deep. Garrett Cole is ramping up for the Yankees. Get the idea? Come October, at least four will pass 100 wins, and that's partly because we have 100 lost teams. It's startling to think the White Sox, whose record are 9 and 28, Rockies are 8 and 28, and the Marlins are 10 and 29, are this bad before selling off parts at the trade deadline to the extent that they have pieces to sell now that Luis Arias is a padre. It's safe to assume these teams' personnel will get worse and the depth even thinner, and that makes it awfully hard to imagine the White Sox morphing from a 243 team to the 437 squad they need to be to avoid 100 losses. Go ahead and chalk up 100 L's for the Rockies and Marlins, too. The Astros haven't lost 100 games since 2013. The Angels never have. Come October... The Astros recover from their 343 pace, but too late to keep their dynasty going. The Angels also avoid 100, but find themselves dueling with Oakland for fourth place. Ellie De La Cruz, 30-90 to 90 club. Might as well get used to it. MLB's liberal stolen base rules will produce wild seasons that look like statistical anomalies. Ronald Acuna... Junior tested the Platius last season when, to great fanfare, he became the first member of baseball's 30-homer, 60-steal club, and eventually the charter member of the 40-70 club. 
So long as there are five tool marvels brightening the base's landscape, we'll continue witnessing unprecedented statistical permutations. This year, it's Ellie de la Cruz's turn. The Reds' shortstop entered the baseball zeitgeist with a fabulous start to his career in 2023 before tailing off as many 21-year-olds do. He's charting a similar course this year with six homers and 10 steals in his first 19 games and 2-11 and 11 in the 17 games since. Yet that still puts De La Cruz on a 37-homer, 95-steal pace, which would be the most bags since Vince Coleman swiped 107 in 1987. Come October, 30-80 looks realistic, but De La Cruz is still growing as a player, and any bid at a 40-80 would be threatened by even a brief power outage. And then Marcel Ozuna, 181 RBIs. Sure, the run batted in doesn't have nearly the cachet it once did, scorned as a product of opportunity. Well, you got us there. See, Marcel Ozuna bats fifth for the Atlanta Braves and is asked only to serve as de designated hitter, and simply waving bat at ball is likely to send a few of his teammates toward home plate. The Braves remain in their prime and have been largely healthy, which means Ozuna comes to the plate after Acuna, Ozzy Albiez, Austin Riley, and Matt Olson precede him. That's 11 all-star appearances and nine silver sluggers filling the base paths. Ozuna has responded in kind, with a major league leading 38 RBIs in just 34 games. His projected 181 RBIs would rank fourth all-time, just 10 shy of Hack Wilson's 94-year-old record, and make him the first to drive in at least 150 runs since Alex Rodriguez in 2007. Philly's third baseman, Alec Bohm, has been nearly as hot, with 32 and 37 games, a 136 RBI pace. Hardly a surprise. Bohm has batted fourth or fifth for the potent Phillies. Come October, Ozuna cracks the 150 RBI club and the Braves and Phillies engage in another playoff showdown. And continuing on with more sports, this is from Sports Extra USA Today. Report Suns to hire Budenholzer. The Phoenix Suns plan to hire Mike Budenholzer as their next head coach on a contract that is expected to approach $10 million per year, The Athletic reported Friday. The Athletic, Athletic also reported that lead assistant coach David Fisdale is expected to move to a new front office role. The reports come one day after Phoenix dismissed Frank Vogel as its head coach. That move came on the heels of the Suns following up a 49-33 season by being unceremoniously swept in the first round by the Minnesota Timberwolves. Budenholzer, 54, is from Holbrook, Arizona. He was fired by Milwaukee in May of 2023, just two years removed from leading the Bucks to an NBA title. A two-time NBA Coach of the Year, Budenholzer posted a 271-120 to record in five seasons with the Bucks and a 213 to 197 mark in five seasons 
with the Atlanta Hawks in 2013 through 18. One season into his latest tenure as head coach, Vogel helped Phoenix and triumphant of All-Stars Kevin Durant, Devin Booker, and newcomer Brady Beal challenge the 50-win mark despite injuries that disrupted the lineup regularly. Vogel replaced Monty Williams, who was fired at the end of 22-23 season following a loss in the conference semifinals and subsequently hired as the Detroit Pistons head coach. Vogel, 50, who had 480 career regular season victories as head coach of the Indiana Pacers in 2010 through 16, Orlando Magic in 2016 through 18, Los Angeles Lakers 2019 through 22, and Suns. He led the Lakers to the NBA title at the end of the pandemic interrupted. 2019 through 20 season. Pacers coach Carlisle fined 35000 for ripping officials. The NBA fined Indiana Pacers head coach Rick Carlisle $35,000 on Friday for, quote, public criticism of the officiating and questioning the integrity of the league and its officials, unquote. Carlisle said the Knicks were receiving preferential treatment as a big market team following Indiana's 130-121 loss to host New York in Game 2 of their Eastern Conference semifinal series. New York holds a 2-0 lead in the best-of-seven series heading into Game 3 on Friday night in Indianapolis. Quote, Smart Small market teams deserve an equal shot, Carlisle said. They deserve a fair shot no matter where they're playing, unquote. ESPN reported Thursday that the Pacers are asking the NBA office to review 78 plays that they contend were called improperly by officials in the first two games of the series. After Game 1, Carlisle said officials had made 29 wrong calls or incorrect non-calls in the game, one 121 through to 117 by New York after what the Pacers believed were 49 similar instances in Game 2, the team decided to submit the plays to the NBA per ESPN. The Knicks will receive the videos for review also. Quote, I can promise you that we're going to submit these tonight, Carlisle said after game two. New York can get ready. They'll see him too. I'm always talking to our guys about not making it about officials, but we deserve a fair shot. There's not a consistent balance, and that is, a, uh, that is disappointing. Carlisle, 64, is in his 22nd season as an NBA head coach. And also, we're going to get the girls in here. Report, Toronto Nets expansion franchise. 
Toronto has been awarded an expansion team that is set to become the first international franchise to the WNBA Canada's CBS, CBC reported Friday. The new franchise is slated to begin play in May of 2026. The growing league awarded the club, club to Kilmer Sports Incorporated, headed by Toronto billionaire Larry Tannenbaum, part of the minority ownership of Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. That group owns the NBA's Toronto Raptors, the Maple Leafs in NHL, Argonauts, CFL, and TFC MLS, with Tannenbaum acting as the chairman. Toronto is set to become the WNBA's 14th franchise. Another expansion club, Golden State, enters the league in 2025. A league ceremony to welcome the team is scheduled for May 23rd in Toronto, per the report. The franchise will play at Coca-Cola Coliseum, which is the home to the Maple Leafs' top affiliate, the Marlies, and has a capacity of 8,000 in the crowd. And in more basketball news, NBA draft lottery holds modest value. Four teams enter the 2024 NBA draft lottery on Sunday with better than 13% odds of landing the number one pick. But the prize holds relatively modest value one year after Victor Wembanyama arrived from France. The Detroit Pistons and Washington Wizards share the top odds, 14%, ahead of the Charlotte Hornets and Portland Trailblazers, who picked second and third behind the San Antonio Spurs last June. The Spurs scored the number one pick, selected Wembenyama, and hold the fifth best chance at 10.5% at getting the first overall pick in the 2024 draft via the lottery. The 2024 draft begins June 26th with the second round held the next day. Since the lottery rules changed in 2019, each of the four teams to win the lottery and number one pick entered with 14% odds to land the pick. The first year under the competitive balance rules in 2020, the Timberwolves won the lottery and selected Georgia's Anthony Edwards. While any team in the NBA would have welcomed a chance to bring Edwards or Wembenyama on board, there's a bit of a red-headed stepchild narrative around the 2024 draft class. The order of draft selections for lottery teams, the 14 teams not in the NBA playoffs, will be assigned mid-afternoon at 3 p.m. Eastern Time on ABC on Mother's Day. Final positioning in the lottery was determined after the regular season based on record, with the NBA settling tiebreakers involving teams with identical record, regular season records. Detroit drafted first overall in 2021, Cade Cunningham, and fifth in 2022, Jaden Ivey, and 2023, Asur Thompson. The Pistons find themselves back in this position following a league-worst 14-68 and 68 finish to the regular season. Equal chances for the number one pick belong to the Wizards. Washington last won the lottery in 2010, selecting Kentucky point guard John Wall. The Hornets picked first once in 1991 when they selected UNLV's Larry Johnson. 
but have drafted outside of the lottery only once in the past 23 years. Charlotte selected Brandon Miller number two overall in 2023 and LaMelo Ball with the third pick in 2020. Greg Oden was the Trailblazers pick at number one in 2007, and Portland hasn't been back in the top spot since. Point guard Scoot Henderson went as number three to Portland in 2023. Kentucky shooting guard Shadon Sharp, seventh overall, 2022, and Lehigh guard C.J. McCollum, 10th overall, 2013, were the only other top 10 draft picks for the franchise since Odin. Sporting the best record in the West in the regular season and playing in the conference semifinals, trade-happy Oklahoma City maintains two chances in the lottery as owned compensation in previous swaps with the Utah Jazz, 6% chance at number one pick, and Houston Rockets, 1.5% odds at number one pick. Because of pick protections placed on the trade, the Thunder would receive Utah's selection only if it's numbers 11 through 14. Likewise, the pick from Houston is protected, meaning the Rockets can push the trade to next year if it is in the top four. The Spurs could score a second lottery pick as part of the return due from the Toronto Raptors for acquiring Jacob Pulte. On to tennis. Djokovic starts strong in Rome. Rude out. World number one Novak Djokovic of Serbia overcame a shaky start and defeated French lucky loser Corentin Moutet, 6-3-6-1, in his first match at International BNL d'Italia on Friday in Rome. Djokovic is on the round of 32 after taking care of Moutet in 40, 84 minutes. He dropped his first two service games to fall behind 3-1, before winning the final five games of the set and 11 of the final 12 games overall. Quote, I played a, a lefty and I have not practiced with a lefty in a while. So it took me a little time to adjust to the different rotations of the ball, Djokovic said. The first four games were quite bad for me, a bad start. But then I played well. I only lost one game from 1-3 down. Corriton is a very talented player. He has great hands and is very unpredictable. You don't know what comes up next, so I had to stay focused, which I did, and it's a good opening match. Djokovic needed only one ace en route to a victory. He saved five of seven break points while converting six of nine chances to break Moutet. Djokovic is now only one match win away from 1,100 for his career. His next opponent will be number 29 seed Alejandro Tabilo of Chile, who defeated Germany's Yannick Hoffmann 6-3-7-6-4. Number 5 seed Kasper Ruud of Norway was upset in surprising fashion. After sweeping the first set against Serbia's Mayomir Kekmanovic, Rude fell 0-6-6-4-6-4 on his preferred surface, clay. Rude won 
four clay court tournaments in a row and a semifinalist in Rome in 2020, 2022, and 2023. Quote, it means a lot, especially on clay, where he is one of the best players today, said Kekmanovic, who had seven aces to just one double fault. I'm happy that I was able, after the first set, to come back and win. Number three seed, Alexander Zverev of Germany, cruised to a 6-0, 6-4 win over Australia's Alexander Vukic. And number eight, Grigor Dimitritov of Bulgaria, beat Japan's Yohito Nishikoka. Oops. N-I-S-H-I-O-K-A. 7-5-6-4. Three American stalwarts are on the next round. Number 11 seed Taylor Fritz swept Italian wildcard Fabio Faganini 6-3-6-4. Number 12 Ben Shelton rallied for a 4-6-6-3-6-4 win over Russia's Pavel Kotov. And number 24, Sebastian Corda, outlasted Italians Flavio Coboli. 7-6-4-6-6-4. Rude was not the only seeded plater uh, eliminated Friday. Portugal's Nuno Borges defeated number 15, Alexander Bublik of Kazakhstan, 6-4-6-4. Bublik's seven aces were hindered by six double faults. China's Zizin Zhang knocked out French number 19 seed Adrian Manario, 6-1-6-3. Italian qualifier Francesco Pissarro ranked number 240 in the world, toppled number 23 seed Talon Griekspoor of the Netherlands, 4-6-6-3-7-5. Another Italian native, Luciano Diardi, beat number 28 Mariano Navone of Argentina, 6-3-6-2, and Brazilian qualified qualifier Thiago Montiero upset Australian number 32, Jordan Thompson, 6163. Number 16 seed, Karen Chakanov of Russia, and number 20, Francisco Corradolo of Argentina, both won in straight sets. French qualifier, Terence Altmain moved on when number 26 seed Lorenzo Musetti of Italy retired down 7-5-1-0. Sofia Kennan added her growing record of success at Fado Italico by toppling number 8 seeds Anjabur of Tunisia 7-5-2-6-6-4 in round of 64 of the international BNL d'Italia on Friday in Rome. 
the 25-year-old American upset Belarusian star Erna Sabalenka in Italy last year. Kennan notched her sixth win in the main draw in Rome, her best total at WTA 1000 event. Quote, I love the surface, the courts here, Kennan told reporters. I feel like they're slow, which suits my favorite conditions. There's no attitude like Madrid, which I love. I feel like I'm very comfortable here. Kennan won despite having five double faults without an ace, while Jabur fired nine aces past her. Kennan was especially successful once she got Jabur to her second serve, winning 60.4% of her second return points, or 32 of 53. Quote, I'm feeling great, happy with the play way I played, the former world number four said. Definitely, I feel like I've come a long way. It's going the right direction. I feel like the hard work is paying off. The fact that I'm still fighting. Sabalenka, the tournament's second seed, had a scare of her own Friday, but came out on the other side. She defeated American Katie Volnitz, 4-6-6-3-6-2, saving 11 of 16 break points along the way. Quote, honestly, honestly, for someone who has been sick for four days and couldn't get out of bed, I think I played really quite well, Sabalenka explained. In the first set, I just didn't feel my tennis at all. I couldn't feel the rhythm, just different conditions. So in the second set, I said, whatever, do your best with what you have today. Number five seed Maria Sakara of Greece skated past France's Vavara Gracheva, 6-2-6-2, and Latvian ninth seed Jelena Ostapkapenko defeated Russian Anastasia Potapova, 6-4-6-2. Three matches ended in retirement. Number 13 seed Danielle Collins won her first set 6-4 before a Russian opponent, Anna Blankova, injured her ankle in the first game on the second set and couldn't continue. Number 30 seed Annalina Kalina, Kalinina was up 2-0 on Ukrainian countrywoman Lesia Surarenko when Surarenko retired, and Irina Kamala Boog of Romania led 5-2 when Francis Ocean Doden retired. Also victorious Friday were number 16 seed Alina Svitolina of Ukraine, number 22 seed Carolyn Garcia of France, number 23 Anna Kalinskaya of Russia, number 24 seed Victoria Azarenka of Belarus, number 27 seed Elise Mertens of Belgium, number 32 Diana Yastremka of Ukraine, Rebecca Semkova of Slovakia, and Sarah Soribs Torma of Spain. I'm going to switch to the May issue of City View and read a food dude 
story, and this is by Jim Duncan about Tamayan's sons as a veritable heirloom. One sometimes still hears Italian spoken on the Lucretia and Louis Tamea bocce ball court. The meaning of heirloom has been extended this century in American vernacular. It's not, not just for nouns anymore. I've seen it used to describe baseball fans, tomatoes, pigs, brand new wristwatches, and stocks. There's nothing wrong with that, but here's what Oxford now has to say. Heirloom 1. A valuable object that has belonged to a family for several generations. 2. Denoting a traditional variety of plant or breed of animal which is not associated with large-scale commercial agriculture. If restaurants can become heirlooms, Des Moines' most legitimate examples are Italian. Graziano's, Noah's Ark, Chuck's, Barada's, Scornavaca's, Latin King, Bianchi's Hillside, Centro, and Tamayan Sons. Like adoration for a particular baseball team, love for those places has been passed down from one generation to others. Italian Americans have respected food traditions as much as any other ethno-religious group. Many heirloom types of food in Des Moines sprouted from seeds that Italians brought from the old world. Italian restaurants from Rockies to Orlando's had gardens behind their places. Italians Des Moines is southerly. Traditionally, the Italian neighborhood was the south side, and most Des Moines Italian Italians hailed from southern Italy. The only other American city with so many Calabrese restaurants per capita is Detroit. Tamayan Sons is rife with traditional South Side values. An oft-packed par parking lot, particularly for lunch, attests to a bond of loyalty between the cafe and its neighborhood. Bargain prices, mostly around $12 for lunch, are part of that draw. One sometimes still hears Italian spoken on the Lucretia and Louis Tamea Bacci ball court. One regular customer is comedian Willie Farrell, who has his own booth. They treat you like family, not the third cousin who lives across the street and bums food off you every other day family, but beloved uncle who's visiting from Italy for a week family. All kidding aside, great people, great food every single time for over 25 years. Two restaurants tried to make it in this location and failed. Joe Tamea made it work from day one. He came to Iowa as a teenager. His wife, Lou, from Lucretia, came here at 13. They worked as tailors at Foreman and Clark and saved money to open this place. There is nothing like it on the south side now. It's fabulous in every way. The walls are the history museum of the south side. The bocce ball court is the best in town, Farrell observed. After Lou Tamea died in 2002, regular customer Joseph Leo took over making bread at Tamea's in the mornings. When Farrell's wife Jenny was pregnant with softball legend Claudia, she frequently craved Tamea's pesci con crema creamed peaches. No other place in town does that dessert the same way, if at all. Today, the Tamea's call Claudia peaches. Salt and Boca, stuffed with capicola, is made here to a classic Italian Recipe that is being phased out of Des Moines' repertoire. Boiled ravioli with meat or cheese stuffing or both are as good as any in town. Lasagna is traditional with cheese, tomato sauce, and meat or vegetables. It is sold out as a carry-out order before Thanksgiving because it's as much a part of Italian Des Moines feasts as turkey. Veal is still served three different ways. Cotolette, 
The best in town is made with beef tenderloin, breaded with homemade crumbs and sautéed in olive oil. Pastachena is still made with hard-boiled eggs. Braccioli is still stuffed with bacon and celery, then braised in red sauce that is sweeter than most. Tamea's iconic creamy garlic dressing is an original recipe. They still serve terrarelli and cannoli for dessert. And as the menu promises, you can always depend that some of Joe Sr., Louis Mario, or Joe Jr. will be at your service. From the Nation and the World Extra, where abortion could be on the ballot. And with it, there's a uh, photo of a woman that's dressed like the Statue of Liberty. She did a good job buying her, her outfit. Several states expected to vote this year on issue. Abortion right advocates are working to place the issue on the ballot in nearly a dozen U.S. states in November's election, including several expected to play central roles in the presidential race and the battle for control of Congress. Democratic candidates from President Joe Biden to members of Congress to state legislators also are trying to build support for the measures, which they believe will galvanize left-leaning and independent voters. The list of states include Arizona, which is likely to be a critical swing state in the presidential contest between Biden and Republican former President Donald Trump, and will feature a competitive Senate race. Abortion rights will also appear on the ballot in Nevada, where another high-profile Senate election will take place in Florida, a one-time battleground state that Democrats say could be back in play after the state Supreme Court upheld a six-week ban. Anger over the U.S. Supreme Court's decision to eliminate a nationwide right to abortion in 2022 has been widely credited with boosting Democrats' performance in that year's midterm elections as well as statewide races in Kentucky and Virginia last year. Since the court ruling, every statewide ballot measure, seven in all, has gone in favor of protecting or expanding abortion access, including in conservative strongholds like Ohio and Kansas. Here are the states where abortion could be on the ballot in November 5th. Arizona. Arizona for Abortion Access, a coalition of reproductive right groups, said it had collected more than 500,000 signatures as of beginning April, far more than the approximately 304,000 needed by July to put a measure on November's ballot that would guarantee abortion rights. If approved, the referendum would amend the state constitution to protect abortion rights up to fetal viability, generally around 23 or 24 weeks. The issue of abortion has, was thrust to the forefront of the state's politics in April when the state Supreme Court ruled that an 1864 near-total ban enacted nearly 50 years before Arizona became a state, 
could take effect. The decision energized Democratic voters and drew more attention to the referendum effort. The state legislator repealed the law weeks later after a handful of Republican lawmakers voted with the Democratic minority. Abortions are now restricted under a 15-week ban passed in 2022 after the U.S. Supreme Court decision. Florida. The state Supreme Court on April 1st approved a ballot measure backed by reproductive right groups asking voters whether to amend the state constitution to protect abortion access. In a separate ruling, the court upheld the state's existing 15-week abortion ban, a decision that also cleared the way for a more stringent six-week limit to take effect on May 1st. State Attorney General Ashley Moody, a Republican, had asked the court to block the referendum as a misleading and vague, but four of the seven justices, all conservatives, disagreed. Unlike most states, constitutional amendments in Florida must pass with at least 60% of the vote, a higher threshold of support than any statewide abortion measure has yet received. Once a perennial battleground state, Florida has leaned Republican in recent elections, voting twice for Trump and electing Governor Ron DeSantis in a landslide in 2022. Biden's campaign says it believes he could win Florida following the state Supreme Court decisions. Nevada. Abortion rights groups said they had gathered more than 110,000 signatures as of April 2nd, more than 100,000 needed by late June for a constitutional amendment to protect abortion to qualify for November's ballot. State law already offers similar protections, but adding them to the state constitution would make it harder to roll them back. Voters would need to approve the measure twice, this year and again in 2026, to amend the Constitution. Other states, in Missouri and South Dakota, both deeply conservative states where virtually all abortions have been banned, organizers said they have collected enough signatures to qualify ballot initiatives that would add abortion rights to state constitutions. Similar campaigns are underway in Arkansas, where abortion is out, outlawed, and in Nebraska, where abortions are largely illegal after 12 weeks of pregnancy. Ballot initiative drives are also ongoing in Montana and Colorado, both states where abor abortion remains legal under state law. Advocates say that adding abortion rights to the state constitutions would ensure that lawmakers or courts could not roll them back in the future. While not a presidential battleground, Montana is expected to see a highly competitive U.S. Senate race this year. There are two states in which lawmakers have approved abortion-related amendments for November's ballot, New York, and Maryland. In both states, abortion is already legal under state law, and Democratic-controlled legislators 
have approved referendums that would amend their state constitutions to add additional protections. However, a New York judge struck the measure from the ballot in the state in May, ruling that lawmakers had not followed proper procedure when approving it. The state's Democratic Attorney General, Letitia James, said she would appeal. And also from the Nation World Extra USA Today, we have several in-brief stories. Trump's son, Barron, will not represent Florida at convention. Former President Donald Trump's youngest son, Barron Trump, will not be a delegate representing Florida at the Republican National Convention in July due to prior commitments, the office of his mother, Melania, said on Friday. On Thursday, a campaign official said Barron Trump, 18, had been selected by the state party as a delegate from Florida, a notable move given that he is kept largely out of the public eye during the campaign. While Barron is honored to have been chosen as a delegate by the Florida Republican Party, he regretfully declines to participate due to prior commitments, Melania Trump's office said in a statement. In Florida, presidential campaigns submit a list of proposed delegates to the state party, which in this case would have included Barron. Delegates are allocated following primary contests in each state. While the rules are complex, delegates are typically assigned to represent a candidate at the convention where the nominee is officially selected. Postal Service wants 25% price hike for high-volume shippers. The U.S. Postal Service on Friday said it is seeking an average 25% price hike for high-volume shippers to enter packages for regional delivery through its Parcel Select service. The price hike, which would take effect on July 14th and must be approved by the Postal Regulatory Commission, is because USPS no longer intends to give incentives for parties to aggregate mail volume from multiple shippers and bring such volume directly to the destination delivery unit. USPS is not proposing to hike prices for its USPS ground advantage package shipping. Last month, USPS said it plans to raise the price of first-class mail stamps to $0.73 from $0.68, effective July 14th. The hike, which must be approved by the Postal Commission, would raise mailing services product prices by 7.8%. USPS in November reported a $6.5 billion net loss for the 12 months ending September 30th, as first-class mail fell to the lowest volume since 1968. USPS on Thursday reported a second-quarter net loss of $1.5 billion. I'll give you one more here, I think, or so. Uh, Mexico heat wave melts temperature records in 10 cities. Mexico registered record-high temperatures in 10 cities, including the capital, authorities said on Friday, amid a searing heat wave that has prompted blackouts nationwide and pushed the power grid to the brink. In the normally temperate high-altitude capital of Mexico City, North America's largest metropolis, thermometers on Thursday peaked at 93.7 degrees Fahrenheit. And then death toll from floods in Brazil hit 126 as rain returns from Canoas, Brazil. 
Rains returned to Rio Grande do Sul on Friday as the death toll from historic floods in Brazil's southernmost state reached 126, according to local authorities. Storms and floods battering the state, home to some 10.9 million people, have also displaced almost 340,000 whole 40,000, while another 141 are still unaccounted for, civil defense authorities said. Heavy rains have caused several rivers and lakes in the region to hit their highest levels ever, while floods blocked streets and disrupted logistics, triggering a shortage of essential goods in certain areas. Almost 2 million people have been affected so far, authorities said in their latest update on Friday morning. Weather forecaster Met Sol that said that most Rio Grande do Sul cities should experience rains until Monday. In Canoas, one of the most affected cities near state capital Porto Alegre, over 6,000 people were staying in a college gymnasium turned into shelter. From the, at, in the Iowa Life, the office reboot is set in the Midwest. Will we see any cornfields? The hit television series The Office is getting a reboot and it's going to be set in the Midwest. But where in the Midwest? Greg Daniels, responsible for the U.S. version of The Office, and Nathan, for you, co-creator Michael Coleman, are behind the news entitled Series According to Peacock. The documentary crew that immortalized Dunder Mifflin's Scranton branch is in search of a new subject when they discover a dying historic Midwestern newspaper and the publisher trying to revive it with the volunteer reporters, Peacock said May 8th. Are there any Iowa connections to the office? Notably, Iowa does have a connection to the original show. Holly Flax, the human resources representative for the office, who eventually dates Scott, was from Des Moines, according to Season 5, Episode 3, titled Business Ethics. Flax was played by Amy Ryan. That sounds so warm, Scott told Flax when he learned about where she was from. In summer, she replied, here's what we know so far about the new show. There, where will the office reboot be set? While there's no official word as to where the reboot will be set, Iowans can only hope to spot some familiarity in the scenery or plot points in the new series. Fields of corn and soybeans, tornado warnings, folks fueling up on gas station breakfast people, uh, pizza, and good-natured rebates on which Midwestern state the best state fair. The reboot is set in the same universe as The Office. And that brings us to the end of the Des Moines Register for today, Saturday, May 11th. I'm Mark Morrison. My partner at the microphone has been Peggy Ernst. Earlier, you heard Scott Splavak and Nick Herter. You can listen to Iris programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Support for today's readings comes to the Des Moines Register, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and bensoundmusic.com. Thank you. 